from John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that whoever eats from it will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then many of disciples who heard this said, This message is harsh. Who can hear it? And at this... Many of his disciples turned away and no longer accompanied him. Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also want to leave? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm wondering if you could have heard a pin drop when Jesus asked that question. Do you also want to leave? How did he ask it? Was it sad, vulnerable, informational, accusatory, bitter, resigned? Do you also want to leave? It's quite the picture John paints pretty early in his gospel. This is just chapter 6. And John is in the midst of a very strange section of his gospel. And a long one, actually. 71 verses in chapter 6. We're not going to dive in and try and get to the root of all the, the unique stuff that's happening in this chapter. But... In order to capture that one scene and that one question from Jesus, it helps to just remember where we've come. This chapter begins with a crisis of hunger and food. Jesus is teaching on the mountain. The crowds are gathered and they're hungry. They don't have food with them. Many of them probably don't have food. So Jesus turns and finds a boy with a small small meal and he blesses it and feeds the whole crowd until they are full. Then, that night, Jesus walks across a stormy lake and sort of rescues the disciples and helps them get their boat across to the other side. The next day, on the other side, the people have come again. The crowds have found Jesus. They're they're hungry again. But this time, when they find Jesus, they get a teaching from him that is a bit more than they bargained for. Jesus says, I am the bread of life sent down from heaven. It's a direct reference to to manna that Moses and the people's ancestors would have eaten in the wilderness while they were wandering. And, And then Jesus continues, and it gets a little weird. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life. And yes, it sounded as strange to them then as it does to our ears today. We can probably hear in the background as John is telling the story how, how generations later as the Christians are, are participating week by week with the bread and the wine of communion, there are rumors circulating around that these people are cannibals. They eat flesh and drink blood. That's who they are. 
And there is, as Jesus continues and, and teaches the people, there's a strangeness about this Jesus and his teachings. It was great when he was feeding, the, feeding us bread on the mountain and, and even pretty cool when he walked across water, but now this, this teaching is, is harsh. It's too much. And so many people stopped accompanying Jesus, John says. And so Jesus turns to the 12, that inner circle of friends, and says and asks them, do you also want to leave? This summer, uh, when Becky and I were traveling in uh, France and Spain as part of my sabbatical, we saw, as you might imagine, and as uh, we picked up on a couple of weeks ago, we saw a lot of cathedrals and very old churches. I mean, we knew this going into the trip. That's kind of one of the things you do when you go to Europe, right? You go see cathedrals and very old churches. It's part of the experience. And in fact, I think there was a part of me here. I was on sabbatical going to Europe, and I needed to just, I mean, to, to explain uh, why going to Europe is a good part of a sabbatical. And I thought probably going to cathedrals may indeed be this unique kind of experience. Maybe as I travel through these ancient, old, grand buildings, there would be something. I was imagining sitting in them and having the, the epiphany, right, to kind of absorb the, the deep history of our Christian story and tradition. What better place to do that than traveling in cathedrals in Europe? And there was something. I mean, cathedral after cathedral, church after church, we saw there is something extraordinary and mind-blowing about this, Right? about going through those very old, very grand spaces. I've got a few more pictures that I didn't get to last time, so we're going to just keep working through these. Um, I think the oldest church, just a few of these, I think the oldest church that we saw was in Grenoble. It's in the south of, of France. This one uh, is the Church of St. Laurent. It is now actually an archaeological museum because they discovered about 100 years ago that if they began digging, they went layer upon layer back through the history of Christianity all the way to like the 6th century, where at the base where this church started was a burial crypt. And even some of the headstones in there go even further back to like 300 when the Romans uh, were coming into that area of France. Incredible to just stand there and see things that old. Mind blown, for sure. On the other hand, the newest uh, church that we saw was probably the Sacre Coeur. This is the one up on the hill overlooking Paris. And you can go there and look out at the view. And if you are a fan of the movie Amelie, as I am, you can run from the top of the stairs where the telescope is down through the path and down to the streets of Montmartre just like she does in the movie. Because why not? If you're in Paris, where are you going to go to see a cathedral? Notre Dame, of course. And what else can one say about Notre Dame than the hunchback? You go just down the street to St. Chapelle, and this is an incredible church with stained glass windows from floor to ceiling. And it turns out if you get tickets on the right night, you can go and hear a string quartet play Vivaldi's Four Seasons live in this chapel. Because Paris. <laughs> you cross the river, 
And there's, there's more, right? Across the river, there is the Church of Saint-Germain-de-Prés. It is unique because, as I learned, they face the kind of challenges we all understand. Like a, a while ago in the ninth century, they were frequently, or, or at least occasionally, attacked by Vikings, like happens. And uh, Steve, I was thinking maybe for the next safety committee, we need a contingency plan for when we are attacked by Vikings. Uh, that, that happens. But also, if you go here and you're looking for it, you can find where Rene Descartes is buried. The guy that said, I think, therefore I am, if that, if that helps. So, there's that. Down the street from there, Church of Saint-Sulpice. I believe this is like the second largest church in Paris next to Notre Dame. Is incredible. The space, the age, the beauty, the architecture, all of that. There was a pipe organ, and if we are worried about the hundreds of thousand dollars for this pipe organ, this one would be unimaginable. And then, what caught my eye, actually, though it's kind of a terrible picture, is in the back of this particular very, very old cathedral is a flowchart of their ministry organization. That, I don't know, just because that was uh, interesting uh, contrast. But there it is. They're, they're still clearly organizing ministries with flowcharts. And it goes on and on, as you know and, and can imagine. And I'm going to admit this morning, with, with some apology to the many of you here who, who actually have a depth of understanding about the history and the context and the architecture and the art and the beauty of all of these incredible spaces, that by the time we boarded the train that took us out of France and into Spain, I was, if I'm honest, a little cathedraled out. A little worn out of very old churches. And actually, if I'm even more honest, that feeling for a pastor on sabbatical was one that kind of began to feel strange. It was this feeling that began to wriggle around in the back of my head and kind of down in my soul. Uh, maybe that's what happens when you have long train rides or even longer plane rides, or, or when you're seeing the days of your sabbatical slipping by on the calendar. But you begin to, to wonder about these things. Somehow something about being cathedraled out kind of got to me. Wasn't I supposed to like have an epiphany or something while going to all these cathedrals? Or, or like have something profound to write in my report about my sabbatical. I was counting on that. More to the point, I actually wonder if there was this little bit of personal existential angst that, that comes from looking around and recognizing that these incredible monuments of religion and art are now primarily visited as museums and, and tourist places. Something about that. I mean, it's not like I want to be nostalgic about the good old days when Christianity ruled Europe. There were some problematic things going on then. But just maybe, if I'm really honest, this experience kind of tapped into that nine awareness that, that so many of us have, that there's this decline of religious attendance and affiliation in our, in our contemporary culture. And, and maybe it kind of pushed to the surface that, that the way that our churches and our culture just seem to be talking straight past each other. I wonder if it was tapping into a little bit of that. Maybe, 
Just maybe this experience that I had was tugging on this thread that if you follow it and weave and wind your way through all of it, eventually that thread begins tugging in a new way on Jesus' question. Do you also want to leave? I wonder if I'm not alone here in being haunted from time to time by that question that Jesus asked these 2,000 years ago. Here's, here's how the conversation sounds when, when maybe pastors are in a room talking about it. And please hear me. The list I'm about to give is not a doom and gloom kind of thing, but it is a very real and honest conversation that, that we'll have to kind of try and be real about what's happening in the world and, and recognizing the amazing time in which we live and how there are some unique challenges for being and doing church. So, if, for example, we can put together a list that sounds a little like this. If you're looking for inspiration and education, there are some fantastic podcasts and TED Talks galore that we all have access to, right? If you're looking for inner peace, there are apps on your phone that are really quite amazing. If you need to work on mental health or get your life on track, there are trained professional therapists who provide excellent guidance in that. If you need great coffee, try an independent hipster coffee shop. It's fantastic. If you're looking for a show, some incredible music with uplifting energy that blows your mind, how about Coldplay at the Rose Bowl or Juanes at the Forum? Or, or if you like Jesus lyrics in, in your music, there's a whole industry that provides for that. If you are looking for a community that is focused and passionate about justice and equality and inclusive love, they're out there doing pretty well and often without the drama. And so at times it feels almost as if the church in the midst of all of this kind of has its elbows out trying to squeeze out its place in all of this. And sometimes our response is to try and compete, which is tough, or to turn our backs and condemn and, and shame the whole business. And maybe when we're honest, we hear echoes of Jesus' question in a new 21st century kind of way, do you also want to leave? For this morning, at least, I am grateful for Peter's reply in this ancient sacred story that we're reading for the, for the Sabbath. When Jesus asked this question, and you could hear a pin drop, and we, we turn and look around the 12, it's Peter who speaks up, and he says, To whom would we go, Jesus? Where else would we go? And here's why I'm grateful for that response. In another verse or so, Peter is going to kind of tack on some more. He's going to give a response that sounds a lot like the kind of response he gives in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a bold one. We believe and know that you are God's holy one, he says in verse 69. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. It's a confident, bold confession. 
And I would, get, I would imagine that some of you here on some days resonate with that kind of confidence in your confession. But before we get there, we get this different sort of reply from Peter. Where else would we go? It's almost as if I hear Peter has actually considered some of the other options. He's watched those others leave and he's wondered about it. He's a realist, this Peter. And yet at the end of the day, there is this something about this Jesus. Where else would we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. And church, please hear me. When John's gospel says the words eternal life, please don't reduce these words simply to a ticket to heaven. As if Peter is saying, well, where else would we go, Jesus? You have my ticket to heaven, and wouldn't it be awkward if I get to heaven and I'm guarding the pearly gates and I have to turn myself away because I don't have a ticket to get in? Peter, would be awkward. But when John's gospel says eternal life, John is talking about something that is, is like what Jesus says in John chapter 10. I have come that you may have life with a capital L and have it more abundantly. Life with a capital L. There's something that happens when they hear the words that Jesus speaks. Words about the love of God. Words about the love of neighbor. Words about blessings for the poor and the outcast and the imprisoned. Words about healing and wholeness. Words about faith and not worrying. Words about life with a capital L. Life more abundant. Where else would we go? Is Peter's reply. There's this something we can't find anywhere else. So we made our way to Barcelona, Becky and I. And I am all churched out. Except that everyone says if you go to Barcelona, you have to go to La Sagrada Familia. Which is this very very large church that's been under construction for 135 years. It's like the number one thing you do in Barcelona other than eating dinner at 10 p.m. So, so we got online to book our tickets for Thursday, our, our final full day there. Thursday came, we got on the metro, we got off at the correct stop, we exited out from underground, and there we are below this immense church. Scaffolding and cranes still under construction. Ten more, eight more years to go. 2026, they expect to complete it. So we get in line, we get our audio guides going, and we begin learning about the Antonio Gaudi's vision for this incredible masterpiece of religious art. He's the architect. It began in the 1880s. He died in 1926. It's still been going the, the outer facade is, is covered with carvings and artwork that tell the stories of the Bible. The one side is all about the nativity of Jesus with a special place for La Sagrada Familia, the Holy Family. 
the family that makes its journey to Bethlehem and then flees to Egypt as refugees, Mary, Joseph, Jesus. The carvings and the intricate detail as we're standing there looking at this massive thing are overwhelming. Since Gaudi died in 1926, other artists have been, have been uh, adding to all of it. They've been trying to be true to his original vision while also expressing their own experiences of, of life, faith, world. There's something there. And so I'm standing outside looking up, and it is a lot. And actually, I'm torn a little inside between a lot is impressive, big is impressive, and big is sometimes oppressive. Torn between those two. Until finally, the audio guide instructs us to go inside. So... I walk through the massive doors, the entrance of the Sagrada Familia. I look up and around, and that is when it happened. A flood of emotion and awe and beauty washed over me. I look around. I catch Becky's eye. She has her earbuds in, and she looks back, and she sees the the moisture welling up in my eyes, and she mouths to me, Me too. And we walk through this thing overwhelmed by something I don't think I have ever seen before. It's hard to put into words, of course. Several of you I've talked to have said you had the same experience, so we're not weird. But I want to try to reflect just a little bit on what is it that was was working here. One is this, the celebration of nature in this massive contemporary church. Gaudi loved to incorporate nature into his work. It's the sacred, the sacred creation of the divine. Why wouldn't we celebrate it, he thought. And standing in the sanctuary feels not like you are standing in sort of an ominous closed-in space, but like you're standing in a massive forest. It's beautiful, overwhelming. Another one is natural light. Gaudi had as probably his biggest priority in his architecture to use natural light in his buildings, and he was a master at it. Rather than feeling closed off from the outside in this, in this church, the light comes streaming in, and it's almost as if we can't tell whether we're inside or outside. The, the beauty and goodness and truth of outside is streaming into the inside somehow. I don't know. And then colors, every color of the rainbow expressed in magnificent ways through stained glass and and other methods. It was as if it's celebrating the joy and the beauty of life and world and diversity and all of it. So moving. And if I were to summarize, I find myself saying a sentence that sounds something like this. In this church, you see the, it is both exuberantly Christian in its symbols and its storytelling while at the same time universal in its celebration of life and goodness and truth and the world that God loves. And it was as if in that moment, church, I was finding myself reminded that there is this something something life-giving, something beautiful, something, something irreplaceable in this story of Jesus. 
The story of a God who loves life and worlds. And maybe sometimes when we don't catch that, when we begin to feel the, the, the stone walls sort of closing in and we ask all those questions, maybe that's because we end up telling the story in a way that ignores or shuts out the beauty and the truth and, and the goodness that is in the world all around us. I don't know. But there was something. And there was one final piece that kind of sealed the deal for me there in the Sagrada Familia that day. In the back of the sanctuary, on the, on the doors that will soon in a few years be the place where worshipers exit back out into the big world from whatever they have been doing inside. There is carved on these massive doors the words of the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. The whole prayer is carved in big letters in the local Catalan uh, language of Barcelona. And then in some 50 languages from around the world are carved the, the central line of that prayer. Give us today our daily bread in language after language after language after language. And I think, church, for me, that, that is it. For us here at La Sierra, perhaps, that is it. That's the, same, that's the thing, a simple prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Literal bread for all people in all places so that no one goes hungry and so that all people can be well. And also the bread of life, abundant life, life with a capital L for all, all people. These are words of life that speak the unconditional, uncontrollable, uncontainable, boundary-breaking love of God. For you, for me, for our neighbor across the sanctuary, across the aisle, across the neighborhood, around the world, this love of God that gives life. And we gather week by week by week because there's something Something about these words, something about this Jesus, something about worshiping and confessing and listening and going out again. And today, church, as we, we open a, a new chapter, the next chapter of this Lossier life together and continue to move into our future, we, we settle again into these rhythms of worship and, and gathering, confession, community, learning together, telling the story, repeating these words of life. And what more appropriate way today than to bear witness to five baptisms of, our, of teenagers from this community who have heard that there is something, something about this Jesus and this story and so in moments like this, gathered as a church witnessing something like this, it's just a bit easier to say, where else would we go, Jesus? You have life. Amen.